Our guest today is Jose Jimenez. He's a senior lecturer in synthetic biology at Imperial College London, whose research occurs at the interface of synthetic biology and evolution. His lab is interested in how evolution shapes the properties of proteins exhibiting quantum mechanisms, cell economics, and the dynamics of complex microbial communities. The applications of this research range from the development of novel methods to fight antibiotic resistance to the use of engineered microorganisms for the upcycling of plastic waste. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I'm so, so fascinated by your research. I feel like it's quite unique to find research in between synthetic biology and evolution, not kind of just on one end of that spectrum. Um, and I wanted to start with your work in quantum biology. And first of all, how is quantum mechanics relevant to biology? Well, um, thanks a lot, first of all, for the, for the invitation for speaking today. Uh, and I must confess that this is my first time. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry if I come across a bit nervous. Uh, I'm not used to do this, but but I really hope to you know to say things that are at least useful for part of the audience. Um, so, if you think about uh, the universe, you know, every all matter, it's everything works at a quantum level. Of course, you know these quantum properties. We don't need to go really deep into the quantum properties uh, to try to understand the world in which we live in. It's only this weird quantum behaviors at the atomic level that might be of interest to for even quantum physicists. I mean, they, they have lots of applications in things like uh, computing, uh, et cetera. We are coming across more and more technology that is being developed in, in this area. Now, um, whether quantum behaviors are important in biology or not is a completely different matter. And it's, it's actually subject of, of a lot of debate. Um, and there are many different experts uh, who argue that quantum behaviors in biology are super important, and I'll get to that in, in a second. Uh, and some other researchers say uh, that it's essentially impossible to have the type of quantum behaviors uh, that we observe in, in other systems in, in biology. Um, and just to add a bit to that, when we think about quantum mechanisms, we are typically looking at atoms that are pretty much in isolation, uh, and, the, and we investigate systems that are, for example, at very low temperatures. So there's very, very little noise. And then we, we start looking at all these quantum phenomena, like coherence, um, um, I, I don't know, I mean, there are, there are different aspects uh, that might be of interest. But in biology, so we are thinking about systems that work at, at, at room temperature, um, which are way noisier. Uh, and we are not talking about isolated atoms or molecules, but you know, the whole mess of things that are going on inside the cell at the same time. So it's, it's highly controverted whether there could be quantum behaviors or not, first of all. But anyway, uh, over the years, uh, some people have thought about mechanisms in which biological mechanisms they could have a quantum aspect. And there are a number of them. Um, and I think if you're interested in this, I encourage you to have a look uh, at the book written by uh, John Joe McFadden and Jim Al-Khalili that is called, um, I think it's called Quantum Biology. Um, and 
and that's a very good description of different um, biological aspects in which quantum systems, in which um, it is thought that they said a part of quantum behavior. So we are currently investigating two of them. So one of them is called uh, quantum coherence that takes place during photosynthesis. Okay, so uh, photosynthesis is um, a super important mechanism responsible for the world, the world that we live in, basically. Um, and I think you all know how it works. So in energy is captured by photosynthetic systems, uh, photons are captured by photosynthetic systems, and that kind of uh, powers the machinery able to, among other things, fixing carbon dioxide and producing oxygen. Uh, so that mechanism of um, capturing the light, of harvesting the electrons, is not particularly efficient if we think of it from a more classical perspective. But if we bring in quantum mechanics and we invoke mechanisms like quantum coherence, then that mechanism of capturing the light becomes super efficient. So basically, uh, people working on photosynthesis think that there is, some of them at least, think that there is a quantum mechanism responsible for capturing the light and transmitting the energy very efficiently to the reaction, what are called the reaction centers that start photosynthesis. Right? Um, so that's something, there's some evidence supporting the quantum coherence present in photosynthetic systems. Uh, some authors think it's still uh, a matter of debate. Some people think that that's not um, still very clear and it could be explained by other mechanisms, including classical. Okay, so that's one of them. Uh, the other system that we are interested is in, in the sensing of magnetic fields. And this again, um, is a really interesting mechanism in which basically there is a protein or, or there could be a set of proteins that have, uh, that produce um, at some point, you know, they, they, they operate with flavin, right? So what they do is under certain light conditions, they can produce radicals. So these are free electrons. And these free electrons that are, that are unpaired become sensitive to magnetic fields. And cells have developed a machinery for being able to detect those uh, radical pair mechanisms and therefore trigger outputs, like for example, a neuron firing and letting a bird know what is the right direction in which they should move because they're actually seeing the magnetic field of the earth. So those are the two main uh, points in which we've been working on. Uh, and what we've been doing, again, is in line with trying to harness evolution for our particular purposes. So we've been trying to, first of all, understand quantum coherence in photosynthesis by doing life-directed evolution of photosynthetic uh, proteins in, in purple bacteria. That's the model that we use uh, in our experiments. Um, and we've also tried to leverage uh, proteins called cryptochromes that are able to respond to magnetic fields and see if we can engineer magnetic reception in, in bacteria. And once again, is the model that we use for these investigations. Oh, that's fascinating. Why, why have these systems that exploit these quantum properties evolved? Are they more efficient than systems that don't? Um, well, that's that's um, that's the kind of important claim that that no one, I think, has really been able to to demonstrate. You know, it's, if it is quantum, it's better. Uh, and it might not be always the case, you know, might be that sometimes things evolve 
uh, because that's uh, the best possible solution at any given time. Uh, if a system could be evolved, maybe the solution would be completely different. But in this case, and in the particular case of photosynthesis, it's believed that uh, having a coherent mechanism makes the transfer of energy more efficient. So you would expect that something that is quantum is better in that particular scenario. Uh, for the magnetic field reception, um, it's to cut a, a long story short, what seems to happen is these cryptochromes, these proteins, which are typically involved in sensing light uh, and they're responsible for circadian rhythms in, in different organisms, including plants and animals, um, they seem to have developed or, or they seem to have been coupled with the ability of uh, sensing these radical pair mechanisms as well. Uh, so in, in this case, I'm not sure if it is the only option available for sensing the magnetic field, but it's, it's the one that that people think that it's that it's working. Uh, um, in, in especially, you know, for for these for migratory birds, for example, that take advantage of it. Well, how how would you potentially study whether something has evolved because quantum effects are more efficient? Um, that's a that's a very good question. So the approach that we are taking for um, the coherence in photosynthetic systems is to generate a wide diversity of proteins that may have different degrees of coherence. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we've been trying to do is precisely answer. We're trying to answer that question: is is it better because it's coherent, right? So that's that's the fundamental question. So what we've been doing is to try to generate libraries of these proteins involved in the, in the um, capture of photons and the transfer of energy. Uh, they're called light, light harvesting complexes. Um, and then we transfer each of them, or we generate a library uh, by directed evolution using different molecular methods. And then we transfer them to the purple bacteria that are normally able to produce them, but we use mutants in which you know these proteins have been removed. So the only the only proteins, the only light harvesting complexes they can make are the ones that are being introduced in the library. So once what we do is we generate again a pool of cells, each of them expressing a different variant. And then we put them all together and then we force them to compete. Um, we put them under the light and we see which ones of them are the winners. And then we expect to, um, then we analyze what are the proteins that have been made by the winners. And we try to correlate the function of these proteins with the possibility of having quantum coherence. So we would obviously need to do further tests and, and use uh, different biophysical methods to try to determine what are the, uh, the properties of those proteins. Um, but essentially what we are trying to do is to see if we could generate all the if evolution could generate a diversity in which we can tune the quantum behavior, which one ends up being the best. Okay, interesting. And in terms of like synthetic biology and the impact, the applications of this to that, um, you mentioned your lab is trying to engineer some of these systems. Um, what kind of approaches are you taking for that? Um, for the for the photosynthetic for the coherence in, in photosynthesis, uh, I think the the potential applications are very straightforward. Is we would end up with proteins that have different properties in terms of the efficiency of 
uh, transferring this energy uh, and the type of light to which they can respond. So what we um, are looking into doing afterwards is to um, try to categorize them and end up with a collection of proteins that we know respond to different types of light, including dim light. So imagine uh, that we could end up with photosynthetic organisms that could operate and produce molecules of value even when it's dark or it's getting dark at least. So that's something that uh, seems to play an important mechanism in some of the um, biogeological cycles in the ocean, um, but it, it hasn't been really used for engineering. So that, that would be something straightforward to do, is to try to um, match the properties of the proteins that we have evolved to the right conditions. So, and as I said, this could be the intensity and the, and the frequency and the wavelength of, of the light. Okay, so that would be one thing. Now, for the uh, for the magnetic field reception, then once we manage to demonstrate that these cryptochromes enable cells to or to respond to magnetic fields, how could that response um, be coupled to something else? That's that's quite the challenge, right? So basically, these um, mechanisms. So what we are thinking or what we are trying to do is to demonstrate that there's a link between magnetic field reception and oxidative stress in the cells. Because when these radicals are formed as part of the um, capturing light, so these are proteins that need to respond to light first of all, then uh, these radical pairs are formed and those radical pairs uh, generate oxidative stress to the cells, right? So the magnetic fields actually should make these uh, oxidative damage um, larger. So cells should probably have uh, a, a growth defect or at least some sort of phenotypic effect that derives from the production of these uh, stress radicals. Um, therefore, you could think of coupling the natural oxidative stress response to the sensing of magnetic field uh, of magnetic fields. And that's, and that's the, the scenario that we are considering at the moment. So this is still early days. And to some extent, we've demonstrated that uh, there is um, a little bit of oxidative damage to, generated to the cells because of the presence of cryptochromes excited with light and under magnetic fields. But there's still the question of whether this is enough uh, to be able to generate an output that you could think could be used for different types of applications. So you could imagine cells that compute magnetic fields, for example, right? But that's something that's still um, still not there. <laughs> uh, wow, that's incredible. Um, I know I was reading a little into like the origins of quantum biology, and I found that it was actually Schrodinger's work that inspired Watson and Crick to investigate the nature of genes and the structure of DNA. And he even proposed that mutations are due to quantum tunneling yeah, exactly. in gene molecules, which is incredible to think that like very fundamental questions in biology can link and be answered by quantum mechanics and quantum effects. Do you think that quantum biology has the potential to answer really big questions about why natural phenomena is the way that it is, or is it kind of just limited to these specific processes? Um, so I, I personally don't think that quantum biology can operate at all regimes of biology. So you will need to invoke quantum behaviors to explain a quality. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's something 
um, that I think needs to be very clear. Like someone uh, said once to me, uh, when you're trying to model how a car behaves or, 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 one, or how many cars behave, for, for example, in a highway to try to explain traffic jams, you don't need to model the precise uh, mode of operation of an engine, okay? <laughs> so we don't need to invoke everything quantum to try to explain everything that happens in biology. It is true that it might be involved in way more phenomena than the ones that have been described so far. Um, the quantum tunneling in DNA structure that you propose is super important because we know, or it's, it's highly likely that that mechanism is responsible for spontaneous mutations. Those are not the only mutations that we're observing in cells. So the, we know there are other factors, uh, for example, you know, the efficiency of DNA replication. So not every single mutation, not the whole evolution of a biological system is going to be generated by quantum effects, I think. Uh, but that's, so this is my personal opinion. Uh, and there could be other mechanisms involved, but it is true. I mean, it's something that was proposed a very long time ago uh, and, and it happens to, to an extent. Uh, there are other mechanisms, for example, protein to protein interactions or binding of proteins to DNA or proteins to RNA and the process of translation itself that some people think they could have components of quantum tunneling as well. So I, I, it's, I think it's, you know, these ideas of applying quantum mechanics into biology have been around for a very long period of time, but they have been neglected for biologists for a very long period of time as well. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so there is, a, there is a whole world of possibilities, you know, um, and there could be many other systems in which uh, quantum mechanics could play an important role. A completely different story is, whether when you try to um, maybe develop applications out of this, so for example, if you are trying to explain disease or you are trying to cure a disease, um, you really need to invoke quantum mechanics at all. And, and I personally think that it's probably not needed. And, and biology in general, or biologists in general, um, don't, they, they never really had the need, so they didn't care much about um, behaviors at a quantum scale. They are more interested in phenomena that, that occur at, at much larger scales uh, for which you probably don't need the quantum descriptions. You know, having said this, I think it's a really interesting field. And even if there are some niche applications, uh, they could be very important. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because processes like photosynthesis are so fundamental. Um, how did you actually start becoming interested in quantum biology? Um, it was through interactions with John J. McFadden, um, Professor John J. McFadden. He is based at the University of Surrey, um, where I was. Um, I started um, my first academic position was over there as a lecturer. Um, and we started having discussions. Eventually, uh, Professor McFadden, together with um, Professor Al-Khalili, led a successful proposal to the uh, Levehume Foundation. Uh, and they supported a doctoral training center on quantum biology. So that was uh, the beginning of you know, my contribution to different aspects of, of, of quantum projects. So I've been supervising uh, one point on photosynthesis and, and involved in another one on, on magnetic sensing um, 
in this area. Wow, that's incredible. Um, okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about your work in cell economics mm -hmm. and studying trade-offs governing gene expression. So um, first of all, cell economics sounds like a very foreign concept, I think, even to a lot of people who are in fields of biochemistry or molecular biology. What is cell economics? <laughs> well, it's, it's simply this idea that cells don't have enough resources to do everything at the same time. And they need to be very careful in the way they allocate these resources in order to be able to be fit enough to survive. Right? Um, and this especially applies to the process of gene expression. So when we started investigating, um, so I, I got into these ideas uh, because I was working, I was a postdoc at the time uh, at MIT in the US. Um, and we started looking into why genetic circuits fail. Um, and, and we realized that sometimes they fail because they don't have enough ribosomes to translate all the messenger RNAs that you need to be trans you need to have translated at the same time in order for the circuit to be functioning. So we started playing with the idea that there are certain limitations affecting different types of cellular resources. And in the end, uh, you could think of a cell as, as a closed economic system. Um, you know, it mimics very well uh, regular economic systems in the, in the sense that um, there are many components, especially if you think of macroeconomics, so there are many components. Uh, there could be many different things that, that are, might be affected by different processes, and the effects are largely nonlinear. So, and it's very difficult to predict what's going to be the outcome unless that you have a very good understanding of the system. Um, in the particular, so we've, we've spent a lot of time investigating a very simple system in which we have two genes being expressed at the same time, and then we look how they couple to each other. Uh, and when we started looking into them, then we realized that basically you could think of, we are trying to make two goods with a certain budget. Um, so the way in which the uh, production of these two proteins is constrained uh, depends on that budget. Um, and if you make too much of one, then you can make too little of the other and the other way around. And essentially this mimics what you would expect in, in, a, in an economic system in which you are trying to make two goods with, with just a limited amount of money. Um, actually, the trade-off between those two goods in microeconomics is captured by something that is called an isocost line. So it means these are all the possible combinations of two goods you can make with a limited budget. And we demonstrated that's exactly what happens inside the bacterial cell. Uh, and that kind of trigger everything else. <laughs> so that's mm -hmm. why we are investigating these, these, these systems using a, an economics analogy. That, that is not new, by the way. I mean, people have been thinking about the economics of the cell for a long period of time. Now, um, being able to come up with things like, you know, there are isocost lines that might explain the, the synthesis of two proteins um, and that the budget of the cell is limited by the number of ribosomes. Uh, those are the type of things that we've been investigating more in detail in recent years. Okay. Um, would you say that is it just these ideas in economics that are applicable or are kind of the, the quantitative basis behind them in the maths? Does that apply as well to the cell behavior? It's, it's both of them. Uh, there is always an analogy in systems biology 
that you can relate to, to economics. So maybe not with the same name, but things like elasticity, uh, for example, uh, that applies in economics, um, has an important role in biology as well. So we know the price of making these proteins will depend on the growth rate. So we've been spending a lot of time trying to investigate what are the trade-offs between growth, um, growth metabolism, and, and gene expression. So I guess the, the analogy with economics can be pushed for really as long as you want, um, <laughs> as, far, as far as you want. Uh, we, I personally try to not to abuse of, of this type of analogies because they can be confused, they can be confusing in the end. Um, but I think um, it's a very powerful idea to think of cells as closed economic systems. Uh, well, they're not entirely closed. I mean, they're still interacting with their environment. Yeah, and with each other, I guess. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess, as opposed to closed economic systems, cells are, are they more dynamic and they're constantly evolving? Uh, yes, uh, that's something that, that could happen as well. Uh, and it's one of the problems of syn synthetic, well, it's not really one of the problems, mm -hmm. one of the properties of synthetic biology is that the, these systems that we are trying to engineer uh, can change over time. So things like mutations could have an impact on uh, growth, uh, and, and therefore and this itself will have an impact on the expression of different proteins. Uh, something that cells don't want to do is to express proteins that they don't need for survival. So it's relatively easy to end up selecting for mutants that basically don't um, express the pathway or genes of interest that, or the circuit that you are trying to build um, and, and eventually that function is is lost. So that's another really important aspect is how to engineer with biology, how to engineer with evolution. Um, right. So there are, there are advantages of it. So for example, we can, because we know cells are going to try to maximize their fitness. Um, if we could think of linking that fitness increase to the production of something that is of interest to us, then we can always try and make that function better. <clears throat> this is the uh, the typical scenario of antibiotic resistance, right, is if you want to see what's going to be the evolution of an antibiotic resistant gene, you just need to wait because eventually you end up generating variants that, that helps the cells cooperate with antibiotic stress. Um, in synthetic biology, however, we it's sometimes difficult to link um, fitness to the production of, a, of an exogenous function. So uh, yeah, those are the type of questions that, that we are investigating at, at the moment. Uh, in terms of economics, we've spent, as I said, um, quite some time trying to, to understand those uh, links between growth and, and the machinery that is needed for, and the synthesis of the machinery that is needed for gene expression. Um, I did read about some of your work on developing feedback controllers to mm -hmm. reduce the cost of making proteins. Could you expand maybe on how that how that, exactly that works? Yeah, yeah, happy to. Um, so, as I said, when we started investigating um, a very simple system with just two proteins competing with each other, uh, we realized that at least in bacteria, uh, the main limitation comes from not having enough translational machinery for um, making the proteins, right? For translating those messenger RNAs. 
we don't know if it is specifically the number of ribosomes or if it is something else. You know, at some point, it could be something else related to translation that becomes limiting. It could be, I don't know, any other translation factors. But let's let's pretend for a second that we are talking about ribosomes. Right? So we don't have enough ribosomes to, to produce those two genes. So uh, we came up with the idea of uh, instead of trying to use a single pool of ribosomes, why don't we split the pool of ribosomes into two? So one of them, one part of or one of the pools is going to be allocated to all the messenger RNAs inside the cell. And the other pool is going to be specific, specifically allocated to the translation of the messenger RNAs of the genes of interest. So how do we do that? Well, we use the technology that is <clears throat> that was developed by by Jason Chin, sorry, um, at the University uh, of Cambridge, he's at LMB. Um, and he used, he developed something that are called orthogonal ribosomes. So these are, um, so these ribosomes have one of the constituents, which is the 16S RNA, <clears throat> that is orthogonal. And by orthogonal, I mean, uh, it's able to recognize only ribosome binding sites that have a specific sequence, but not, uh, the rest of the ribosome binding sites. So effectively, any ribosome that instead of having the wild type 16S RNA incorporated, if, if it has the orthogonal 16S RNA incorporated, it will translate the orthogonal ribosome binding sites. Okay. So, um, and likewise, so basically we can allocate specifically part of the pool. So all these ribosomes that incorporate the 16S ribosomal RNA will translate the orthogonal ribosome binding site. And these orthogonal ribosome binding sites will be present only in the genes of interest. By doing this, we demonstrated that having these two pool of ribosomes, even though it's only the 16S component, which is different, this decreases the competition between genes that are being co-expressed. So we have, we've artificially separated, split the pool of ribosomes into two, and one of them seems to, uh, and this seems to make things better for the cells. So it's cheaper to make recombinant proteins. Um, now, regarding the, the feedback controller, what we did next was, instead of having a fixed set of orthogonal ribosomes, because these orthogonal ribosomes are not useful for the cell under normal conditions, why don't we have an orthogonal pool of ribosomes that changes size depending on the demand for them? Okay, and what we did then was to place the synthesis of the orthogonal ribosomes under the control of a regulatory gene that depends on the orthogonal ribosomes themselves <laughs> in order to be produced. Um, and then with, with that, so that's essentially the feedback controller. So with that, with that trick, when we have lots of demand for the orthogonal ribosomes, this regulatory element stops being produced and then we can increase the size. So it's a repressor, then the, the pool of the the size of the pool of orthogonal ribosomes can increase accordingly. If there is very little demand for orthogonal ribosomes, then this uh, regulatory element kicks in and stops the synthesis of the six, orthogonal 16S. Um, and therefore we have a very small amount of orthogonal ribosomes and the cell can spend all the resources into producing the regular ribosomes. So the translation can occur as normally. So that's how the feedback controller works. And by doing that, we demonstrated that the, uh, you know, having a pool of orthogonal ribosomes that changes on demand um, also uh, makes the production of um, recombinant proteins even cheaper. Mm -hmm. That's such an elegant system. Wow. Yeah. 
what kind of applications is your lab thinking of using that kind of controller for? Um, so we've been looking into proteins that generally um, are detrimental for the cell, so that, that reduce fitness. Uh, you could think of, for example, proteins that are toxic, um, and this might be interesting for the synthesis of antibiotics or proteins or proteins that could have an antibiotic, um, antibiotic effects. Um, that could be one of them. Uh, the other thing would be to try to, um, um, so we'll, we demonstrated that this is uh, particularly useful when having biosynthetic pathways in which one of the elements of the pathway becomes limiting, becomes very limiting. Um, therefore, it makes more sense uh, to have that one under the control of something that doesn't mm -hmm. depend on the rest of the cell physiology. Okay, I see. Has cell economics shed light on the fundamental principles that underlie resource allocation in cells, or is it just useful for this specific application in like gene circuit design? No, we've, we've been working on developing technology, like I mentioned before, mm -hmm. ribosomes and, and and you know, we demonstrated this with, with biosynthetic pathways. In particular, we looked at the synthesis of bioassaying. But it's also, so I think it's interesting also from a fundamental perspective, and we've been working on that as well. So we've spent quite some time trying to understand uh, links between metabolism and resource allocation. So for example, um, there is something that, that has been reported by, by others, and we've confirmed as well, that is when cells grow very fast, uh, they spend most of their resources for gene expression into making more ribosomes, uh, bacterial cells at least. Okay, um, so we've been trying to take that to our advantage, and we've demonstrated by combining, you know, this economics understanding with the use of, of chemostats. We've demonstrated that if uh, instead of trying to let cells grow very fast, if we can grow them very slowly, we can actually maximize the the synthesis of proteins of interest. Um, and we've been trying to, to understand the links of that with, uh, with metabolism as well. So basically, um, the best way of um, optimizing a process, you know, with, with this kind of conceptual framework would be to try to use the best possible carbon source for an organism, which in the case of E. coli is glucose, essentially, because it's a nitrobacteria. Right? Um, and then try to combine that with growing the cells at the very, at the lowest possible growth rate, okay? So use the best food and the lowest possible growth rate that could be, for example, controlled with a chemostat, would maximize the amount of recombinant proteins that are being produced. So, you know, using this type of conceptual thinking, if we were to develop a bioprocess, um, now we could have come up with a solution that maybe is, typ is typically neglected because you know, low growth rates by default generate low biomass. Um, but in this case, uh, we might be suggesting a bioprocess in which maybe we could have a first stage in which you, we could generate a very large biomass production, then decrease the growth rate to try to maximize recombinant protein production, use the best possible carbon source under those conditions. Um, so with all of this, I'm trying to say that we are not only thinking in applications, but also trying to understand these fundamental links is important and could have their own applications, even if they don't invoke any fancy synthetic biology components. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess that does say something about 
kind of what bacteria are hardwired to do in general exactly. is just to grow. Yeah, that's that's another important thing. Not all bacterial organisms are hardwired to grow. Mm -hmm. um, e. coli is, um, and maybe that's the reason why it has seven ribosomal RNA openers. Other, other organisms don't have as many copies. Uh, there seems to be a correlation between the growth rate cells can achieve and the number of ribosomal RNA operons, and all of this is linked to their evolutionary history. So organisms that are exposed to uh, good carbon sources very frequently tend to maximize their growth, whereas there are others in which maybe um, the evolutionary goal is not so much to try and go as fast as possible, but to try uh, and, and be as energetically efficient as possible, so they don't grow as fast. Um, now, whether those organisms, if given the chance, would try to maximize growth rate is a completely different story, right? Um, but yeah, there, there are obviously ecological implications of all of this as well. Mm. Would that potentially impact the like, selection of strains in synthetic biology? Yes, uh, and we've been looking a little bit into that mm -hmm. as well. So there are some, um, you know, microorganisms in the environment they are exposed to many different uh, fluctuating conditions, right? So they basically they don't know <laughs> what conditions they're going to be facing in the next hour, right? So, so what they try, they have a really interesting adaptation that is called bed hedging. Um, that I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but basically it consists of the expression of genes that are not required for the survival in that particular condition, betting on what are going to be the next environmental conditions, mm -hmm. right? So it, it's a mechanism. So basically, they trigger the spurious, they spuriously activate parts of the proteome, even though they are not required, just trying to anticipate what's going to be next. <laughs> mm -hmm. So cells that uh, have that ability to anticipate are able to survive better in the environment. So that's been demonstrated already by, by others. And in, in some organisms, this can be, I think, up to 20% of the proteome. So it could, it could account for a lot. Um, so what we've been trying to do is to leverage that, those bed hedging functions once again. Uh, and we've done some work with E. coli. We are working with other, with, uh, other bacterial species like Pseudomonas at the moment. Uh, and the idea is if we try to demonstrate, if we first of all understand what are the bed hedging functions, which are typically non-essential, if we remove them, uh, can we obtain a streamlined organisms that can grow even better? Mm -hmm. And they're very specific and lab uh, controlled conditions, all right? So, mm -hmm. and, and we demonstrated that that trade-off is possible. So basically by uh, losing bed hedging functions, there is a loss in the ability, in the capacity for adaptation, but in exchange, we can get higher growth rates and higher production of maybe molecules of value under lab defined conditions. Okay, wow. Um, yeah, and so earlier, I guess we discussed, we mentioned the fact that cells don't exist in isolation, they interact with each mm -hmm. other and in communities. Um, how has that impacted synthetic biology so far? Um, I think it has, it's, it's been a very powerful, again, conceptual framework. Um, and we need to understand that, you know, in, in nature, things, as you said, don't work in isolation. Uh, it's been really difficult, I have to say, trying to convince 
pharma and biotech companies about uh, the possibility of using mixed cultures. It's something that they don't like very much. They prefer to work with perfectly defined cultures in which they have their favorite organism, okay? So I think it's, it's uh, these ideas of using microbial communities and trying to take advantage of things like microbial cooperation, et cetera, are really important. Uh, we know communities are more resilient and they can be more effective than organisms in isolation. But I see, I still don't see that this is driving a change in industry, uh, which, I, which might probably be the, um, the, the people that could benefit the most uh, from these ideas. So there are, however, some uh, startups and different companies specifically focusing on the microbiome area they are bringing microbial communities into bioprocesses. They are bringing communities into understanding health, into uh, things like improving farming uh, and things like that. Uh, the big industry, chemist, chemical, biotechnological, etc. Uh, I think they would uh, they would prefer to avoid communities if they could, uh, because of the way the bioprocesses run. You know, they've been optimized for many years to run very large fermenters with, with a single species and then trying to fill that with more than one, um, especially with all the risks for contamination, etc. that could have it is something that they're not willing to do. But anyway, I mean, that's, that's perhaps my personal opinion. I mean, I'm really interested in microbial communities, as I said, I mean, that's exactly what happens in nature. Uh, we have several projects that are in which we are focusing on, for example, removal of waste, including plastic waste. Um, and if, if we look at what happens in the environment with very complex substrates, like for example, wood and, and lignin, cellulose, etc., is not one microorganism, but a series of them that are required in order to be able to um, mineralize those substrates efficiently. And that's something that we are trying to do in the lab as well. Mm -hmm. Why was so pharma and biotech, are they so resistant to this just because it's kind of like another complicated factor they need to consider exactly. and potential for contempt, right? Okay. And they think it's not worth yeah. that trade-off. Exactly. So mm -hmm. if it is for them, it's already very complicated to manage one strain at a time. <laughs> Uh, you know, developing a bioprocessing, which there have to be more than one, it would be even more difficult. So the traditional way of um, industry using, especially I'm thinking of industrial fermentations, is to optimize a process for, for just one species. And they are being reluctant, I think, to, to do more innovative things like uh, using communities. You know, having said that, there are, there are niches in which uh, microbial communities are an absolute requirement, like for example, anaerobic digesters that are typically used to process waste in, uh, in different facilities and normally they're dedicated to uh, production of energy as well. And they rely on communities and these are oftentimes natural communities. So, so it's, not, it's not at all industry, all of it is, is um, against the use of microbial communities, but they have very, they have very specific niche applications. But I haven't seen a still a boom. Um, you know, there's a lot of work done on, on microbial communities, in particular microbiomes and the impact that they have on different things, right? And other than human health, uh, possibly, I haven't seen still that boom of microbial communities taking over the whole of the biotechnological industrial mm -hmm. landscape. 
Do you think the boom will come? Uh, hopefully, yes. I mean, for health, uh, it is clear that we need to take into account the microbiome. And I think there are more and more companies dedicated to very, you know, each of them is taking one problem at a time. But uh, I, I think we are, you know, we are getting there. Um, and I see more and more interesting things related to, for example, micro nutritional health um, and investigating the microbiome as well. Um, there are companies looking at microbiome for farming, <laughs> microbial communities that promote plant growth. Uh, we all know, you know, there is a big push for getting better, more efficient, organic uh, farming processes. <laughs> um, and I think microbial communities will play a role in that as well. But there is nothing comparable to that uh, in the biotech industry, even if you think of fermentations, you know, traditional fermentations like alcoholic beverages, sometimes they're, well, most of the times actually doing with just one um, string of yeast, possibly. There are some others like uh, production of fermented foods in which they have to use communities. Um, so, you know, mm -hmm. production of yogurt and kefir, et cetera, that's been, that's been traditional, mm -hmm. you know, with communities, but it's the same thing as with the anaerobic digesters. It's always been like that. <laughs> uh, so mm -hmm. the adoption of, of microbial communities in biotech in general, I think it's, it could be faster. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Interesting. Is the idea, is there any potential to maybe manipulate these social interactions for an advantage like like better production or is the goal kind of just to factor in the interactions into the design uh, no once that you if you know the final outcome depends on the interactions of the community it should be amenable mm -hmm. for engineering as well um, for example communities that exchange metabolites um, are a good example of communities in, that could be engineered and that could have a, a as a benefit improving the whole bioprocess. Um, you need to think that some of these organisms might be in the community simply because there are sinks of molecules that are uh, byproducts or that are produced by others, but, but are um, basically they, uh, they're produced um, and they don't go any farther. So if we could have something that drives the metabolism or drives the equilibrium of different metabolic reactions to the production of this zinc molecule, and there is an organism that is in charge of removing it, you know, that they could make everything more efficient, uh, especially if this uh, metabolite that has been accumulated is toxic for the community, you know. So there, you know, there are different things in which you could think of interfering with the community in order to improve a bioprocess. So that's syntrophies, what I, what I just described is just one of them, but there, there could be many others. Mm, that's interesting. I've read that interactions in natural bacterial communities are dominated by competition as opposed to cooperation, which confers stability to the community. Would that potentially be something to target given that using resources for competition could be wasteful? Um, yes, um, normally so these scenarios, so these are highly um, hypothetical scenarios uh, and I'm, and normally we are looking at lab experiments, okay? So we, we, don't, we don't really know whether this could be upscaled or not because no, no one really is trying, <laughs> as I said. But, but it's been demonstrated. So for example, if, if, we, if we needed to produce a molecule of value that requires two species, 
um, if they are competing for the same carbon source, for example, for the same food in culture, then you would most likely get a very low yield of production of the molecules in trips. However, if, you, if we manage to make, to force them to cooperate, and this could be, and this is traditionally done by making them exchange something so they become mutualistic, then um, the production of whatever molecule of interest could be maximized simply because the two of them need to coexist. Um, you know, having said that, these two species could still be affected by uh, the invasion of another cheater that could take advantage of both of them, even if the two of them cooperate. But it's been demonstrated that microbial communities that cooperate are more robust and resilient to invasion. Um, so, it, yes, it is true that in nature, um, competition plays a super important role. Uh, but it's also true that cooperation exists, uh, so competition hasn't taken over, and there are different mechanisms by, by which cooperation can be preserved, and cooperative communities seem to have a series of advantages that might be uh, interesting for a particular process. Oh, okay. So you could potentially provide a community with an environment that's more conducive to cooperation? Or, or you could... Um, or, the approach that I've normally seen is the two species that are normally competing. Um, so, it's, so basically, it would be a comparison of two scenarios. And one of them, there's the direct competition between the two species, even though they both are needed for a particular process. Um, but so that would be one scenario. The other scenario would be to try to force them to cooperate by engineering some sort of mutualistic exchange between, between the two of them. Um, and the second scenario tends to increase production yields of a molecule of interest. Wow, that's interesting. Do you think that, um, do you think this will be like a very big shift in synthetic biology or will it really only play a role in specific cases or scenarios? No, I think, I think it's something important that needs to be taken into account. So, you know, production of molecules, like the type of biotechnological approach is not the only focus of synthetic biology. So for instance, there is a lot of interest these days into trying to manipulate the microbiome for health and for prevention. Um, so you need to think of ways in which you could develop something, a probiotic, something, um, uh, and maybe a microbial species that could be delivered into the gut and could, um, could be able to colonize the gut or parts of it at least, or at least you know, to reach a certain frequency in which it could do whatever it's supposed to do, right? Um, so once again, we are thinking about a community that is really complex with thousands of different species in which you are trying to introduce one with, with your functions of interest. Um, so people do this, for example, to try to deliver uh, molecules that are good for the host, uh, humans or you could think of having microbial species that could act as sentinels that prevent uh, other species from uh, taking over a community etc so there are many different applications and all of them involve uh, engineered organisms working inside very complex environments with lots of other competing species so I, I think that beyond fermentations it's really important to take into account um, that cells do not work in isolation. So I, I see many different applications that could derive from this uh, type of work on microbial communities. How did you get into 
these different fields of research because they're all at the interface of synthetic biology and evolution, but also not very obviously directly related. Well, they are all connected from a fundamental perspective. Mm -hmm. okay? So in the end, um, all these problems are um, problems are ecological problems. So if you want um, economics problem, <laughs> so it doesn't matter whether we have two genes competing with each other uh, or two species competing with each other. So the conceptual framework is exactly the same. Now the the applications or the specific systems that are used to investigate these um, type of processes could be very different. So just to give you an idea, with microbial communities, uh, in my lab, we have two types of projects. And one of them, we are looking at uh, cooperation by investigating uh, antibiotic resistance. So antibiotic resistance is a trait that normally involves the secretion of an enzyme that degrades the antibiotic. So that's a, cooper a cooperative trait. Right? But we do have a different type of projects in which we are using microbial communities for degrading plastic. Uh, in which, once again, there's a microorganism that needs to secrete an enzyme that is able to hydrolyze the plastic and then makes the monomers that can be used by the community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, conceptually, it's the same problem. Uh, if you just look at the perspective from the perspective of the application, one of them is supposed to be kind of more clinical research and the other one is more biotechnological. But as you said, everything is at a very fundamental level connected by these um, um, ecological or economical ideas. Um, and the same happens when we look at inside the cells. So for example, all these ideas about trade-offs between growth and gene expression, et cetera, you could think of them as we have all the genes competing for the same machinery, which is the same thing that happens when the community is competing for the same resource. Mm -hmm. Have you always been interested in synthetic biology in like the duration of your career or was there a shift at some point? Well, when, when I started my PhD, synthetic biology wasn't a thing yet. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so um, I'm a molecular biologist by training mm -hmm. and I did my PhD in a, in a field called um, bioremediation. So we, are, we were basically, and I still do that actually, we were trying to uh, come up with ways of using microorganisms to deal with, with waste, mm -hmm. <laughs> with different type of, of pollutants in the environment. Um, when I finished my PhD, then I started you know, reading about something super exciting uh, that people was calling synthetic biology. Uh, that at first I thought it was a bit like molecular biology on asteroids, uh, <laughs> because they were trying basically to do very similar things to what molecular biologists would normally try to do, but like way more complicated uh, and with the help of, of models and maths. Um, and I got really excited with the prospect of, of taking advantage of, you know, the combination of computational and, and wet lab research. So I started working on it since. Um, we are talking about the year 2006 or so. <laughs> um, I don't think I've always been a, a synthetic biologist. Mm -hmm. um, and I try in a sense to uh, do fundamental research as well. So try to answer um, fundamental questions in biology. Uh, and there's no, there's no need to, to call that synthetic biology. <laughs> um, 
it's a it's a bit of there's a bit of, of branding involved as well, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I think I think um, uh, like with any other field, synthetic biology has gone through uh, the different stages of hype. And maybe then people becoming a bit more critical about what could be achieved. But I think now it's, it's not an emerging field anymore. It's, it's very well established. <laughs> and, and, and people have a very clear understanding of what synthetic biology entails, right? Mm -hmm. And it's this combination between um, engineering and biology that kind of makes it unique. Mm -hmm. uh, and I take a, a lot of, or I have a lot of fun actually working with with people with that type of expertise. So I'm not a computational or theoretical biologist myself, but I really enjoy from that type of collaboration. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's an emergent property of the two fields together, greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Um, previously, you mentioned that pharma and biotech are sometimes hesitant to adopt new ideas proposed in academia. Would you say there's a gap between industry and academia in SynBio that needs to be bridged? Not in synthetic biology in particular. So I think if, mm -hmm. if there's something that defines uh, synthetic biology too, is um, the, the startup landscape. Mm -hmm. So it's something that is, it's really, it's really good to see. It's spectacular. So the amount of different companies uh, that are coming out, <clears throat> that are led by really young people, um and are trying to develop disruptive really disruptive technologies so we are looking at things like ingo um companies like ingo which we are uh, trading now uh and they're a massive company it started with only i think two or three students in tom knight's lab at mit maybe from 10 12 years ago i don't remember exactly when they started but but not much longer than that so you know, all these companies that are being created, so it's a really, really dynamic landscape. And I think it's what's making a difference. There is, you know, traditionally, we tend to think that all the exciting research is done in academia and then uh, industry only does the very repetitive applications, but that's not true, at least not in synthetic biology. And we have now companies that are uh, being really disruptive, you know, the, um, the development of molecular technologies like CRISPR, et cetera, has made a massive difference as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, all those companies are bridging the gap. Um, so, and I, I can see how will, they will come forward uh, and they will probably become larger and will be able to adopt technology and, and discoveries much more quickly than the traditional industry. Yeah, and I think it's particularly interesting that that's the case for synthetic biology and perhaps not for other fields in biosciences where academia and industry don't really cooperate very well or researchers look down on people who leave for industry, whereas in synthetic biology, you have a lot of cooperation. Yeah, many of these companies um, are created in academic environments. Uh, there's been out. Um, all the programs that I've seen for students in synthetic biology, both undergraduates and masters, et cetera, have a very strong focus on uh, entrepreneurial activities. And I think that's important, you know, the type of mentality is attracting lots of very good people with a lot of talent and they are doing great things. Uh, I think in that sense, synthetic bio is unique. I mean, it's promoting this transition from academia to, to the industrial area. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think is the biggest thing or biggest things holding synthetic biology back right now? 
Well, it's the fact that we need to come to terms uh, with the idea that we cannot engineer absolutely everything, or we don't have a very precise understanding of what we are engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been considering biological systems like computers or electronic devices that we could, you know, we know what the different components do uh, when they work in isolation. Uh, and then we should be able to predict what's going to what they're going to make when we put them together, but that's not the case. So we have uh, different problems. One of them is the substrate that we are working with is unique. So there are things like evolution. Uh, we have different types of context dependencies. Um, so we don't have very good standards, I have to say. Um, so it might be we need to, we need to work on you know standardized things like fluorescent measurements, et cetera. So there are a number of factors that I think um, we could be doing better. But, but perhaps the most important one is that biology is something that is really difficult to work with. So it, everything requires a lot of tweaking. So we are still not there at that point in which we can uh, design something um, and, and model it and then build it. Uh, in just one round. So it requires a lot of tweaking, a lot of hypothesis-driven research of the type of, you know, how does growth rate affect this or that, um, which are, you know, relatively simple things, um, but they are very informative. Um, and we need to be able to integrate all those things. Mm-hmm. I guess synthetic biologists have to stay humble. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to learn from nature that, that we still don't understand. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, and even if we know what E. coli does, um, we don't know if all species are going to behave in the same way because who knows what evolutionary trade offs they experienced during thousands of years, right? So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's complex, but it's, it's beautiful as well and it has mm-hmm. a lot of potential. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, finally, do you have any advice for young scientists? Well, I, um, my advice would be try to always do what you feel excited about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it it seems trivial, but you need to think whether you want to have a a career in synthetic biology in in industry or in academia, you're going to need to spend lots of hours trying to solve problems and you need to feel excited about those problems. Um, I wouldn't be too worried about trying to develop a skill set uh, or, or I wouldn't be too worried about trying to focus too much on what are the different uh, techniques that I could learn. At the end of the day, um, what's important is that you know how to solve the problem. Basically, you are able to find information, you are able to process that information and then come up with something that looks like a solution, right? And, and try <laughs> and then being resilient to try that several times until something works. Um, so I think regardless of the career path, it's really important to be passionate um, about the type of, of challenges that you're going to encounter. Amazing. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed this conversation.